Welcome to the Lowenstein Sandler podcast series. I'm Kevin Iredell, Chief Marketing Officer at Lowenstein Sandler. Before we begin, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast series at lowenstein.com slash podcast, or find us on iTunes, Spotify, Pandora, Google Podcasts, and SoundCloud. Now let's take a listen. Hi, welcome to Don't Take No for an Answer. I'm your host, Linda Bennett, Chair of the Insurance Recovery Group at Lowenstein Sandler. And during a recent episode of Don't Take No for an Answer, we discussed one of the hottest topics of 2021 in the DNO insurance space, that being securing DNO coverage for SPAC and DSPAC transactions. Well, since airing that episode, the SPAC DSPAC market has remained active and is running at a frenzied pace. The level of available funding for SPACs is historic and eye-poppingly large. This phenomena has created a capacity squeeze in an already challenged DNO market where it's getting more and more difficult for players in the space to secure their coverage as premium pricing has skyrocketed. But that has not been the only rocket ride. The underwriting process for these policies has taken over a matter of days rather than the usual months-long process that typical DNO coverage entails. Now, from my point of view, that's created a potentially interesting dynamic when we start to consider the next inevitable step in this process, uh, namely, will SPAC and DSPAC claims actually be paid? Will the process be smooth or complex? And will there be unintended consequences flowing from the speed with which these complicated transactions has proceeded? To help probe what's coming around the corner when the claim process starts, I'm pleased to welcome back Steve Chappelle of Alliant Insurance Services. Steve is the specialty claims and practice group leader for Alliant. And also, I'm pleased to welcome Ron Boris, also of Alliant Insurance Services. He's a senior vice president and the financial institutions practice group leader. And they're going to share their thoughts about what's going on in this particular market space. So, Ron and Steve, welcome. Very happy to have you and uh, look forward to discussing this topic. So let's start with what claims do you anticipate flowing from SPAC and DSPAC transactions? And where do you see the most likely coverage issues arising? So I'll go first, Linda. This is Steve Chappelle. So where we've seen some SPAC claims, right? The SPACs on announcement of transaction, DSPAC transactions, we've seen some merger objection-like suits come out where the um, shareholders of the SPAC securities are objecting to the transaction. Either they're, they're making objections that there's not adequate disclosure, not enough details of the deal details, and looking for seeking additional disclosures and or a better deal. So that's the first kind of claims that we're seeing, and, and we're seeing those in state and federal court. And then the, the other claims we're seeing, and we're tracking these really carefully, and there's been nine of them so far. In the, in the last 12 months are after the DSPAC and the now new public company that was a formerly a private company starts to make uh, SEC filings and disclosures, we're seeing some, some claims come out of those disclosures and those filings where the shareholders of the new co are seeking damages because of you know, false representations, omissions, disclosures. And you know, bringing kind of classic 10b5 shareholder class action suits against the new public company um, that evolved from the private company. 
Let me just ask on the, you know, you identified the disclosures and the quote unquote, it's a bad deal on the front end there. What are we talking about in terms of coverage? Because to my ear, that sounds like we're mainly looking for defense cost coverage. And are the carriers going to press pretty hard if the focus of the dispute is on get a better deal? Because are the are carriers ensuring the best deal? It's a great question, right? And it, and it's it been a source of frustration, you know, forever, right? Because in a vacuum, it's easy to say, right? No, you know, insurance is not going to pay for a better deal, but you know, that's in a vacuum because often these claims look a little different than that, right? And it's allegations of a breach of fiduciary duty that caused harm that would, uh, you know, otherwise this deal would be worth X plus one um, versus now it's only worth X. So. But I, for the most part, what we're seeing out, out of these merger objection cases, and because the DNO insurance marketplace is very mature on these claims, right? We see a lot of merger objection suits generally, and carriers get it, right? They're, they're, they are cost of defense. And then maybe upon additional disclosures, a small fee for the corporate benefit that the plaintiffs conferred. So the good news is that the DNO marketplace on these merger objection claims are responding very, very well. And they get it, and they're you know truly 100% behind the insureds on these. Um, and and so far, none of them have evolved to a situation where you know there's an ask for additional consideration in that merger objection suit. I mean, one of the things that I think is challenging with particularly these SPACs, where frankly many of the companies are more a bet on future performance. And are, you know, as opposed to actual value, you're really betting on projections of what this high flying company is going to look like when you take them public. Are you seeing any specific issues either on the claim side or, Ron, something that we can do on the underwriting side to just have greater alignment on what the intent of these policies are and what they're going to cover? Sure. So, so let me start by saying everything Steve is saying, we've been tracking this stuff very carefully. And, and that's where having someone like Steve Chappelle on our team really is a, is a great benefit and, and, and sort of asset to ourselves as brokers, because just following the trends in the litigation, as we know, I mean, this stuff could take years to play itself out. Uh, DNO claims by, by history and, and by nature are, are long tail claims. And I think that's what has the underwriter so concerned right now is just this fear of uncertainty. They, they don't like um, high profile things that are in the press every day. I think uh, CNBC spends at least five to 10 minutes a day talking about SPACs and the valuations of SPACs and, and, and everything around that. And that's just not something insurance carriers generally get very comfortable with. But, but I do think that you know, if, if the contract is tailored appropriately, there can be a lot of challenges down the road that can be avoided um, by just making sure the work, the time, the effort, and the resources put in on the front end uh, to make sure you have a good, solid contract that will respond the way you expect it to respond in the event of a claim. Well, are there any specific modifications you think that need to be made? And, and I always focus on the definition of securities claim, or again, the definition of loss. Is there is there a need to start tweaking and modifying those two definitions in particular to make sure that there's alignment and understanding as to where the coverage is going to sit? Yeah, I think where we've been focusing predominantly on is is are the entities that are uh, involved in this back transaction. Uh, I, I think at this point we're pretty comfortable. There's always opportunities to expand definitions and limit exclusions, and we've certainly been taking advantage of of, of doing that where the market will allow us to do so. But, <laughs> yeah, um, I was just going to say in this market, probably a little bit of a challenge, but yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, yeah. you know, I think the bigger issue that and in many cases is not being carefully reviewed enough is just the the, the entities involved. 
Um, you know, there's a sponsor organization that that essentially launches this back, and and it's still not very clear what the liabilities are of the sponsor. Uh, obviously, the sponsor once the the SPAC goes public, essentially dissolves and goes away because it's fulfilled its obligation and purpose. But the question becomes what what can come back after the fact, right? What was done during the roadshow process? What was done during the sort of preparing process? So just making sure uh, continuity uh, is there, making sure that the right entities are covered. We're hearing a lot about um, individuals who are not necessarily serving in a capacity as a director or officer, um, but more as a, as a special advisor uh, or on some type of other committee. Um, they're in many cases being offered indemnification. So making sure that those uh, positions are not necessarily excluded, even though they may not fall within the traditional definition of director or officer. Those are those are really the the things that we're trying to focus on from a from a minutia perspective. And and then to your point, I mean, the market is very challenged right now. There's a very um, limited number of insurers who are willing to consider primary on these types of transactions. So uh, leverage is is not at its best in the form of pushing carriers to broaden certain areas of coverage, but. I think generally speaking, we've found the the participants who are willing to consider these opportunities are are fairly flexible and willing to work with us. Ron, just one quick follow-up on that. When you say that there aren't a lot of carriers that are willing right now to be primary, are they communicating that through a straight-up declination or are they communicating that through offering something but at an extremely high price or with an extremely high self-insured retention? How is that messaging being communicated to the market? Sure. I, I think it's a combination of both. I think there are certainly uh, markets who are acting um, what I'll call as opportunistic. And they're basically saying, we don't love this risk, but if um, you know, here are the terms, right? A, a really low limit, a really high retention. And in some yep. cases, what many may view as an offensive premium. Um, and <laughs> and if, if they like it um, or if they have no other options, they'll bind it. Um, otherwise, um, you, you know, it, it, you, to your point, it's essentially a declination. Um, there are plenty of markets who have essentially said, um, we're just not in the game right now. Our management has put a moratorium on it. You know, in some cases, we're following up with those markets daily to see if the, the moratorium has been lifted. I think there are a lot of different ways that these deals can be structured. And I think one of the things that you know we owe it to to our clients, right? Both us and 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 you all at Lowenstein, is just to be creative, right? And, yep. and try to find ways to make it work. Uh, every board is different. They have their own sense of concerns with regards to protecting their assets. And um, I think there are a lot of different ways to solve problems in this market. We just need to challenge ourselves to do so. Indeed. One of my favorite questions is, how much limit should I have? I always respond by saying, what's your appetite for risk? Right. Um, anyway. <laughs> um, <laughs> That's right. Because right? No, it's not a mathematical equation here. All right. Well, so what are some of the things that policyholders can do to best protect themselves? You know, we, we've, we've sort of touched on this. And Steve, I know this is a pet issue of yours. You know, I kind of... Don't step on the cracks or you'll break your mama's back. How are we going to not be on the cracks in between the SPAC and the DSPAC? What are the things yeah. that policyholders need to do on the front end and on the back end to, to make this all flow properly and as expected? Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a great question, Linda. And, and as you and I know, right, we, again, we've been dealing with transaction insurance for a long time. So we, so we have some experience, right? This DSPAC, the pace and volume is unique for these SPAC DSPACs, but you know, kind of the the, the notion of of entities kind of merging and creating a, a new go forward entity is not new. So, so w- what we need to do is really drill drill down in the into the nuances of 
the potential claims here, right? And, and fact patterns, because you have the SPAC that is going to need to go into runoff, right? By tail insurance. You have the target company that is now going to be a new private or new public company, completely different with a whole bunch more capital dumped in on it in addition to the SPAC. And so that policy needs to run off. And then, then you have the new public go forward. And, and, the, and the devil is in the details, right? Um, you know, if, if, if you allow um, carriers, right, to you know, pick language in that scenario, you know, they're, they're risk adverse and, and they'll have language in there where they won't cover, you know, any wrongful acts which occurred prior to the magic date of the, of the combination and the go forward won't cover or, or the, the runoff won't cover anything after the date. And, and the challenge, as we're seeing from some of these claims and we've seen from combination claims you know, over the years, is the, the world's not black and white, right? And so you'll get these claims come in and we call them straddle claims, which will allege wrongful acts which started years ago, right? Misrepresentations yep. about the nature and, and, the, um, and the quality of contractual relationships that um, the private company may have. And then it continues, right? And they learn about it and they don't make disclosures. Um, and for four or five, six months into the new public company. And so that, that is the, the detail, right? We've got to make sure that these policies are crafted to address that situation. And these, and they're paying for th- that part of the loss that is that of the entity, um, the, the SPAC, right? Before DSPAC, right? So the representations they made in the roadshow and the private company, the representations they made. So it's it's not easy. It's super complex. And, and trying to make it simple is not the answer, right? We do an injustice to our clients to make this simple because it's not. It's very complex. And the, and the claims coming out, which are the straddle claims, right? They're just proving the point that this is complicated. And we got to make sure the underwriters and the clients understand the, the complex nature of this placement. Right. I, well, I, and both Ron and Steve, you touched on this, and that is the importance of the team that's in there representing you. A lot of our clients, you know, I'm still surprised to learn a lot of our clients don't understand that this language is negotiable. It's not take it or leave it. And frankly, uh, you know, you've got to have a team like Alliant there who really is living and breathing these policies every day. We've worked very closely with you as outside coverage counsel. You know, we put the whole team together. And frankly, when you do the work on the front end, then there's a lot fewer surprises and discontentment and denials on the back end. So spending that time and effort and money on the front end definitely pays dividends. Sorry, Ron, you wanted to... Uh, yeah, I was just going to say, I mean, the one thing we have to keep in mind is, um, you know, in many cases, the folks that are sourcing this transaction and the board that's signing off on these transactions may not be the board that ultimately runs the company, right? And considering the fact that claims can come a year, two years, three years down the road, you know, we have to make sure we're clear today what the expectation is of who's going to be covered where, what limits they're going to have available to them. Um, You know, there's a lot of uh, different sort of varying opinions out there in the market right now about ways in which to structure these programs. And, you know, while, while many of our clients in the financial institution space um, have stated that that their 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 expectation is they they want to stay involved with the company. Well, that's because in many cases they have a that's their business, right? They're investors. They have a history of 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 doing these types of transactions and staying involved. But there's a lot of a lot of out there right now where it literally is solely for the purpose of of creating the business combination 
And, and then the expectation is that they may not be involved with the company going forward. So you just got to make sure those interested parties are really the, 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 the alignment and the risks and the exposures are all being addressed on the front end. So we have just a couple of minutes, but Ron, that actually segues beautifully into one of the concerns that I have uh, on the claims side, which is, are, are we going to see a heightened risk of the conduct exclusions playing more of a prominent role in these SPAC and DSPAC uh, transactions? due to potential conflicts of interest of the insiders, of financial gain for successful sponsors. Um, so, so let's just touch on that in the couple of minutes that we've got left here. Sure. Well, I, I think, you know, that's the easiest one for the plaintiff's bar to sort of try to bring, right, is, you know, folks knew about something prior to the either the announcement or the transaction, and they didn't adequately or thoroughly disclose it. And you know, unfortunately, almost every single one of those claims is going to involve some allegation of fraud. And it is incredibly important to not only make sure that that exclusion is kept as narrow as possible so that it's not uh, prematurely triggered, but that there's also appropriate severability for other individuals who, who may not have been sort of implicit in that behavior, um, particularly folks who may be running the company a year or two down the road when they weren't even there, presumably, while the failure to disclose or the alleged fraud is is occurring. So yes, I, I think you've hit on a very important point there, Linda, that people just need to be uh, extra careful and vigilant about, because I do think that that could potentially be a challenge at some point down the road. Yeah, and I, I agree with you, Ron, right? I mean, because by, by the very nature, right, these 10B5 suits that are coming out, they're fraud suits, right? They They have to plead and allege Santa, right? The mental state to commit fraud. So your, your question's a great one, Linda, right? The spotlight will be on these conduct exclusions and the property advantage exclusion because the plaintiff's bar loves you know, to allege the motive, right? Is you know, self-dealing, huge profits. That's why you were motivated to not make disclosures and you should have made disclosures. So it really does highlight the critical importance of making sure we continue to be vigilant on the conduct exclusions. And we got to read those policy language. The words matter. Another theme here at Don't Take No for an Answer. All right. Well, in the last uh, 30 seconds we have left here, quick question. Where's reps and warranties insurance fitting within here? Are you seeing that used and combined as part of these transactions? And if not, should it be? Yeah, listen, uh, you know, rep and warranty insurance has evolved. Um, it, it's it's an area that every major broker, private equity firm, and, and major law firms are focused on. As we've learned, uh, you know, rep and warranty insurance has has many different tentacles. You know, we have some real sort of solid experts in the area of tax, um, which is a big one uh, for these types of business combinations because you just don't necessarily know how certain tax uh, you know, were filed or, or tax liabilities that could ensue as a result of certain individuals or, or, or things that were done. So you know, I think that that's a big one. Obviously, there's really no buyer or seller. So I think some of the traditional rep and warranty products may not be as applicable. But again, the thing that people don't really understand entirely about rep and warranty insurance is it's not an off-the-shelf product. It's a product that is, is negotiated, very specific and tailored to the unique characteristics of the M&A transaction. So uh, I do think uh, the rep the and warranty industry has potential to solve some problems for folks here. I just think it it depends on um, you know the specific area of concern and, and, and how the policy is going to be addressed to tailor. Well, that was the creativity, I think, that you were talking about earlier. Well, Ron and Steve, I want to thank you very much for your time today. I think this is a, a topic that's certainly going to remain top of mind. 
You are knee deep, shoulder deep in all of it, and uh, certainly a resource for myself and for our listeners. So thank you so much today for uh, joining us, and we'll look forward to seeing you on a a future episode. Thanks Thanks so much. Thank you, Linda. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Please subscribe to our podcast series at lowenstein.com slash podcasts, or find us on iTunes, Spotify, Pandora, Google Podcasts, and SoundCloud. Lowenstein Sandler podcast series is presented by Lowenstein Sandler and cannot be copied or rebroadcast without consent. The information provided is intended for a general audience and is not legal advice or a substitute for the advice of counsel. Prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome. The content reflects the personal views and opinions of the participants. No attorney-client relationship is being created by this podcast and all rights are reserved.